It's the Saturday after election day. President Trump's legal team supposedly has a big announcement. The president tweeted, lawyers press conference at Four Seasons, Philadelphia, 11 a.m. And I thought, oh, they're, they're having it at a, a nice hotel. That, that's interesting. People assumed he meant here, the Four Seasons Hotel, but another tweet followed with a clarification. Come to find out, it was the Four Seasons total landscaping parking lot. Honestly, I was just befuddled. You would never think of holding a press conference at this landscaping business in Philadelphia. Like, how is this real? Between a crematorium and a sex toy store. A porn shop. Not P-A-W-N, P-O-R-N. Well, I'm here on behalf of the on behalf of the Trump campaign. What was shocking, even to Trump campaign officials who are used to mishaps and disasters on a daily basis, was just how appallingly planned this press conference was. And you know, it was just as much of a shit show as the planning suggested. As a friend of mine says, I don't believe in conspiracies, but I also don't believe in coincidences. So what kind of legal team holds a press conference at a landscaping company? Who are these people? And why were they the public face of Donald Trump's attempt to overturn a free and fair election. I'm Jonathan Swan. I've covered Donald Trump for years for Axios. This is my best attempt to get you inside the room for this first draft of history, to reveal some of the most astonishing, never before reported moments from his final weeks in office. In this episode, we tell the story of how a rational, albeit long shot legal strategy quickly gave way to utter madness. From Axios, this is How It Happened, Trump's Last Stand, Part 2, The Legal Team. Five minutes before that this Four Seasons press conference was expected to start, the Associated Press called Pennsylvania for Biden, officially handing him the election. The Fox News decision desk can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden is on track to win the state of Pennsylvania, winning the White House and denying President Trump a second term. Coverage of his speech actually captured Rudy Giuliani reacting to the news of Biden's victory. The call for Joe Biden isn't... Is it? Who was it called by? All the, oh my goodness, all the networks. Wow. It was just a debacle. It took President Trump's initial attempts to find a legal strategy into the realm of comedy. A dark comedy for sure, but a comedy nonetheless. Trump had two competing camps after the election. On one side are what we'll call the normies. These are top aides including campaign manager Bill Stepien, senior strategist Jason Miller, and Justin Clark, the deputy campaign manager. As far as Trump world is concerned, they were operating in the realm of reality. On the other side were what we'll call the conspiracists. Rudy Giuliani was once 
one of the most respected figures in the country. Well, he's been called America's mayor and... And hailed for his handling of 9-11. Sidney Powell was a successful attorney who defended Enron. A deep concern about prosecutorial overreach led her to write a best-selling book titled License to Lie, Exposing Corruption... Michael Flynn was a decorated three-star general. Flynn roused support at the Republican National Convention with the infamous Lock Her Up chant against Hillary Clinton. Lock her up! And Lynn Wood was a nationally known defamation lawyer. The morning after the election, there was not a sense of despair inside President Trump's inner circle. They still thought they had a good chance of winning this election. But something happened pretty quickly. Rudy Giuliani and his entourage were not focused on narrow, well-thought-through legal challenges, but rather had much grander ideas, often based in conspiracy, about how Trump could win the election. This came to a head on November the 7th, shortly after the networks had called the election for Joe Biden. After watching the absurdity of the Four Seasons press conference, Trump's top aides thought it was worth levelling with him. This meeting happens in the Yellow Oval Room. This is Trump's living room, the same room where Franklin Delano Roosevelt learned of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. President Trump plunked down in an armchair, still dressed from his golf game. Navy fleece, black pants, white MAGA cap. His other aides, Justin Clark, Jason Miller, were arrayed on chairs. Stewards brought hors d'oeuvres on trays. Trump's aides who were meeting with him that day were all on the same page. Justin Clark bluntly told the president that the path they were following was his best shot at winning but that it was at best a 10% chance. The path was what they considered a strong legal challenge in Wisconsin, coupled with what their internal data was showing, which was narrow wins in Georgia and Arizona. The president was nodding, processing, and he said, okay, let's give it a shot. So his top aides leave the White House that day feeling it's a long shot, we probably won't win, but, you know... It's not crazy. As the days wore on after the election, the normies could see they were losing the fight. President Trump is refusing to accept defeat. His campaign says it will contest Joe Biden as a projected winner and plans to file legal challenges. There have been challenges to small batches of ballots, 53 votes at a time. It's hard to say that there was anything that's going to change the outcome of the election. President Trump had two options. He could listen to their reality-based analysis or he could listen to his new gang of advisors who were telling him what he desperately wanted to hear. Mr. President, you can win this thing. Giuliani was gaining influence, speaking directly with the president, demanding to be put in charge. I want to take you inside the Oval Office for a meeting that was extraordinary and significant in this break between the professional staff and the conspiracy theorists. It's November the 13th. 
Trump's deputy campaign manager, Justin Clark, was in the cabinet room of the White House with Bill Stepien, the campaign manager, Jason Miller, the senior strategist. They were there for what was supposed to be a meeting on communication strategy. But Deputy White House Chief of Staff Dan Scavino comes into the cabinet room and summons Clark alone into the Oval Office. Clark walks in there and it's a full house. The president is sitting behind the resolute desk with Rudy Giuliani on speakerphone and everyone in the room listening. Giuliani is trashing the campaign staff's legal strategy in Georgia and floating a debunked conspiracy theory about rigged Dominion voting machines. Trump interrupts Giuliani. Hey, I've got Justin in here, he says. What do you think, Justin? Clark told the packed Oval Office that Georgia state law barred requesting a recount until after an election is certified. Giuliani erupts. They're lying to you, sir, he says. We're not lying, Clark shot back. He sounded rattled, rattled at Giuliani's certainty and conviction about something he was clearly wrong about. Clark says, you're a fucking asshole, Rudy. The president tried to calm things down. He said, you guys need to talk about this. But if you looked at Trump's Twitter, it was clear who he was really listening to. That's in a moment. We're back. On November 14th, without notifying his campaign staff, Trump tweeted that he was putting Giuliani in charge of his legal challenges. The Republican National Committee was not happy about this, to put it mildly. They rejected a request to fund TV commercials claiming the election was stolen. But they greenlit a press conference on November 19th. The stars were Rudy. Give us an opportunity to prove it in court, and we will. And Sidney Powell. The software itself was created with so many variables and so many back doors that can be hooked up to the internet or a thumb drive stuck in it or whatever. But one of its... The press conference played like a bad B movie. Black sweat, evidently from hair dye, rolled down Giuliani's face. I don't think most Americans know that our ballots get calculated, many of them outside the United States, and are completely open to hacking, completely open to change. As he rambled about a supposed democratic conspiracy to rig the vote in major cities. The number of voter fraud cases in Philadelphia could fill a library. Powell alleged an international communist plot. Were created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez. Senior Republican Party officials were mortified but felt helpless. But one of its most characteristic features is, is its ability to flip votes. So a couple of days after that deranged November 19th press conference, President Trump's in the Oval Office behind the Resolute desk. The call comes in from Sidney Powell. President Trump has company in the Oval. And before he picks up the call, he says, oh, Sidney, you know, She's getting a little crazy, isn't she? You know, she's got to really tone it down. No one believes this stuff. And then, you know, he puts the call on speakerphone, as he often does. And Sidney Powell just starts going off on this rant. And Trump puts the call on mute and starts laughing at Sidney. 
for the benefit of his audience. And he cuts back into the call, you know, so what are we going to do about it, Sydney? He says, you know, almost with a wink to his audience, whipping her up into this frenzy. And she keeps going with this conspiracy theory. He's actually having fun with her. He's toying with her. And then he puts his finger back on the mute button and he says, she really is crazy, isn't she? This is an extraordinary scene because this is the person, one of the people that President Trump was entrusting with his legal strategy to overturn the election. And he is saying out loud that she's crazy. The fact is, by that point, his professional staff was not telling him what he wanted to hear, which is that he could still win this election. They weren't telling him that because it was nonsense. But the people who were willing to feed him that nonsense were people like Sidney Powell. And so that's who he became attached to. The one group of people who would tell him that this election was still able to be overturned. Trump promoted Powell, and even though he had privately admitted to AIDS that he thought she was crazy, he still wanted to hear what she had to say. As he told one official, sometimes you need a little crazy. As November ticked over into December, President Trump kept accelerating the cycle of disinformation. Powell and Michael Flynn told Trump that he couldn't trust his team, that the only information that they could trust was coming from them. They appealed to this paranoid mentality that's always lurking under the surface with Trump. You know, the FBI is corrupt, your CIA is working against you, and so is the intelligence community. And I actually, as part of this reporting, obtained documents that Sidney Powell and Flynn fed to the White House staff. Now, to the White House, this was gibberish. The rantings of a QAnon devotee. But these documents actually found their way to the Resolute desk. They're probably the most deranged materials to ever have reached a modern US president. This is what they laid out. They advised President Trump that the foreign conspiracy to steal the election involved a coordinated cyber warfare attack from China, Russia, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Venezuela was also supposedly involved. The White House officials were quite aggressive in pushing back. What Powell was claiming to have uncovered would be the greatest foreign attack in American history. And yet somehow the US intelligence community had seen no evidence of it. But of course, Powell has an answer for that as well. They actually alleged the CIA was in on this and that CIA technology, which was nefariously obtained and taken from the CIA, was now in the hands of China. If this is making your head spin, you are having the exact same sensation that senior Trump White House officials were experiencing listening to this gibberish. But this was not some weird corner of the internet. This was information being funneled to the White House and presented to the President of the United States. It's hard for me to overstate just how untethered from reality the information that he was receiving was. The claims became even more unhinged when they started to actually recommend 
government action. In an Oval Office meeting on December the 18th, they recommended to President Trump that he use the full force of the United States government to seize Dominion voting machines and catch the traitors. And they didn't leave it there. Powell and Flynn characterised this attack as an act of war. In that context, no response should be considered too bold. This was a moment when a series of long-term trends crashed together. You had a president who had access to the best intelligence in the world, yet often relied on conspiracy theorists and junk websites like Gateway Pundit for his information. Then you had this movement, QAnon, this deranged conspiracy theory which has been taking off online and radicalizing so many Americans, finding its way into the Oval Office and having people who have been radicalized by such conspiracy theories, chiefly Sidney Powell, presenting these deranged ideas as a strategy to overturn the election. Throughout December, Trump was amplifying these conspiracies on Twitter. Tonight, Dominion voting systems threatening legal action against former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell. Despite major networks spelling out clearly that the election was over, right-wing news outlets picked up on the conspiracists' narrative. Bombshell discovery about a key member of Dominion's leadership. By this point, Trump was mainlining conspiracies. Many of his longest-serving advisors had all but given up trying to reason with him. Whether Trump was still in charge or whether he ceded decision-making to the bottom feeders was now in question. And Trump didn't just break with his campaign advisors. Soon, he started to turn on his loyalists, like Attorney General Bill Barr and even Vice President Mike Pence. That's next time on How It Happened. This is How It Happened from Axios. You can hear the latest episode of How It Happened every Monday. Subscribe now so you don't miss the next story. You can read more on these stories in my series, Off the Rails, at axios.com. This episode was produced by Amy Padula, Naomi Shaven, and Alice Wilder. Dan Bobkoff is the executive producer. Additional reporting and fact-checking by Zach Basu. Margaret Talev is managing editor of politics. Sarah Kehulani Gu is Axios' executive editor. Mixing by Alex Sugiora. And original music by Michael Hamph. Special thanks to Carol Wu, Dan Primack, Chen Gao, Nyla Boodoo, Tim Shovers, and Axios co-founders Roy Schwartz, Jim Vanderhei, and Mike Allen. I'm Jonathan Swan. We'll be back next week. Thank you.